Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Albeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We read thus far, and in light of that scripture reading and others in the Word of God, we consider the instruction of Lord's Day 11 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Moving in our treatment of the Apostles' Creed from God the Father now to God the Son, Question 29 asks, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Because he saveth us and delivereth us from our sins, and likewise because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints of themselves or anywhere else? They do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation.
Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, everyone, and I mean everyone, is looking for a Savior. There is not a man, not a woman, not a child on the earth who is not looking for a Savior. This is why kids take lunchboxes to school with pictures of superheroes on them. This is why hundreds of thousands of people will be packing into stadiums this fall to watch their favorite athletes. They're looking for someone to deliver them, to deliver them from their pain and their fears, or maybe just to relieve them from their boredom. Nevertheless, they look for a savior. Now, there are some who would point to this common search for a savior as, man, as evidence that man has some good in his heart after all. The heart of man cries out for salvation, they might say. There is a yearning for God that man puts into his literature and into his movies and into his songs. By the common grace of God, there is this impulse to seek a Savior. And if men would just know it, what they're really seeking is Jesus Christ. Some might argue that way. Some do argue that way. But our Lord's Day sends a different message altogether. It is true, everyone is looking for a Savior. They look for saviors in supermen or super saints, or perhaps they look for a Savior by the works of their own hands, which is to say they look everywhere for a Savior except for the one place where God says they ought to look, which is to Him and to His Son, Jesus Christ who is the only Savior because He is the Savior from sin. All the searching and all the longing and all the crying of men for a Savior, in other words, is idolatry and it is evil and God will judge them for it. So what Savior are you looking for? To whom will you turn for comfort in your afflictions and in your troubles? Who will save you? And from what will he save you? If you are a believer, there is only one answer to that question. And it's Jesus Christ. The one who saves and delivers me from my sins. It's what I call our attention to this morning, believing in the Son's salvation. First, we will identify Him as the Savior from sin. Secondly, we will see that He is the only Savior. And then finally, we'll conclude by making this our own personal confession of faith. This Jesus is my Savior. Now, if you know your theology, you know that salvation is many things. Salvation is, first of all, a work of God outside of us and above our heads. It is a work that God willed to do before he ever even lifted a finger or raised his voice. It is a work planned by God in eternity before there was a world and before any of us were born. It is a work that God accomplished in time long ago by sending his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross to save sinners. Simply 
powerfully, efficaciously, decisively, God saves his people. Salvation then from that work of God outside of us and above our heads becomes a work of God from within a person. Those whom he predestinates, he also calls. And those whom he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. That's the order of salvation. Regeneration, calling, faith, justification, sanctification, glorification. It is all part of God's work of salvation, whereby he changes us from the inside out by the work of his Spirit. That's the theology. That's the doctrine that we take the Essentials Catechism students through when we work through the doctrines of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. Well, sometimes we get caught up in the terms and we get caught up in the theology and the concepts and we forget about the basics. And maybe something pernicious begins to go to work in our souls. And we allow the intellectual challenge of all of this, the rituals and the routines of worship, the books, the study, the lessons, the grappling with concepts, we allow all of that to obscure something fundamental, something that all of those terms and ideas and concepts, in fact, if we understand them, are seeking to make us understand, but something that our whole nature is always working so hard to keep hidden and to obscure from our minds which is that of ourselves, beloved, of ourselves, we stand every moment exposed to the everlasting judgment of Almighty God. And that of ourselves, we are barred from heaven. And that of ourselves, there is a flaming, fiery sword that turns every which way, a sword that would cut any one of us in two and send us into everlasting burnings if we so much as approached the gates of heaven on our own initiative and without leave from God. Living our nice, comfortable lives, we get in our nice, comfortable cars, and we drive to church. And we say that we are the people of God. And then what do we do? Ask yourself. We go home and we play with fire. Do we not? We lie to our neighbor. We envy our brother. We watch garbage on our television. We fill our lives with all kinds of things that God hates, and we know very well that we're doing this. And then we wash our hands and we say, no problem. God does not see. Or if he does see, he does not care. Because after all, he's a forgiving God. He's a God of grace, a God of redemption. And all the while, when we think that way, we're hanging over a precipice that falls into the everlasting lake of fire. That's where your flesh leads you, beloved. Do you know it? 
That's where the lust of your eyes and the lust of your flesh and the pride of your life and your folly leads you. Do you know it? That's where your sin, the sin that originated in here, came out of here, out of here, out of these hands. That's where it leads you to hell, to destruction under the bitter, terrible, almighty wrath of God. Do you know it? Do you know it? Do you know that you, respectable Christian man, deserve to be destroyed? Do you know that you deserve to be left alone and forsaken in the deep black chasm the Bible calls Sheol and the grave and hell? Do you know it? Until you know this, the Lord's day means nothing to you. Until you know this, the Lord's day, with all of its theology and its beautiful concepts, will simply become a screen to shield you in your hypocrisy that will allow you to go on in your merry way as if you were not guilty of spitting in the face of Almighty God as if you are not to be blamed for shaking your fist at heaven. You must know this, beloved. You must know this. You must know this the way Paul knew this of himself. Sinner! Sinner! That's what I am. Rebel! Is that not what the law tells us? Why do we have access to the law of God? Why does the law of God mean anything to us? Why does it speak anything to us? Why does it even make sense to us? Is it because we are the righteous? No, that's not what the passage tells us. A righteous person has no need of the law. For the things written in the law come naturally to a righteous person. A righteous person doesn't have to think about it. He just does it like breathing, like waking up in the morning. The law was not made for a righteous person. And to such a person who is righteous, the law is meaningless. It doesn't even make sense. It's like if you were to give instructions to somebody on how to eat or how to breathe or how to do something so basic and so natural that you were born already doing those things. The law is for the lawless and the disobedient. It's for the ungodly and for sinners. That's for whom it was made. The unholy and profane. Murderers of fathers. Murderers of mothers. Whoremongers. Those who defile themselves with mankind. Sodomites, in other words. Men-stealers or kidnappers. Liars. Perjured persons. Does that law speak to you? When you heard it read this morning. Does that law affect you so that you are left feeling guilty or upset? Or angry or ashamed? Or maybe even just indifferent? Then that's what you are. Sinner. Do you know it? 
You must know it. For if you don't know this, you do not know the Lord. You don't. You may know some philosophy, some ideas of men, some beautiful theology even. But if you do not know yourself as the lawless, the disobedient, the unrighteous, the sinful, then you do not know Jesus. That's not my evaluation. That's Jesus' own word on this matter. I came not to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous. I came not to call those puffed up with the wisdom of this world. I came not to call those who are full of human philosophy and human ideas. I came to call sinners to repentance. Period. That's Jesus. He came into the world. Why? To save sinners. But, oh, beloved, oh, people of God, what a Savior He is. What a Savior He is for sinners. Verse 15 says, He came into the world. Do you know what that meant for Him? Do you understand it? It meant humiliation and shame. It meant suffering. Such as you will never know and such as you will never experience. Even the wicked in hell will never know what suffering the Lord lowered Himself unto. For the wicked are in hell on account of their rebellion and hatred of God. They are there unwillingly, though deservedly, for their sins. The God who punishes the wicked in hell is their enemy whom they hate and who hates them and pours out on them all of his scorn and indignation. And yet they never experience all of it because they are limited creatures and they cannot experience the full weight of the wrath of Almighty, infinite God. It's always one drop, one drop at a time. But Jesus Christ, beloved, Jesus Christ, The God who punished him was not his enemy, but his very own father. He is God the Son himself come personally into our flesh, into this world. To see the face of the Father was life itself for him. But he was left. The Father turned his face away, left him in the dark, there to endure the full weight of the wrath and displeasure of God against our sins. Not moment by moment, not drop by drop, 
but all of it. All of it all at once. If you could capture the force and power of an ocean tsunami and somehow compress and compound it into a small drinking cup, that maybe gives us just a little picture of what it was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, experienced in the hell that rushed up around him in the darkness on the cross. The cup, the cup of his Father's wrath. Did he drink it? He did. He drank it all. Why? Why stay there with his head tilted back as all of the dregs of divine wrath were poured down his throat and went down into his belly? Why not walk away? Why not come down from the cross as the people were jeering and mocking and saying that he should do? Why not turn stones into bread? Why not jump off from the pinnacle of the temple and have the angels catch him so that the people will applaud him and receive him as the Messiah, the long-awaited one? Why not gain power over this world by going some other way, the way of glory, the way of power, of earthly strength and earthly might, the way all the other would-be saviors do? Why go this way? The way of suffering. Because he's not like those other saviors, beloved. He's not a cheater. He's not a swindler. He's not the kind of person who offers something that he does not have and that he cannot provide. He's not like all of the saviors of this world or the would-be saviors of this world. Somebody who will offer his soul to the devil for power and fame. He's the savior from sin. Do you know him as such? Or do you say, no, that's not what I need? I don't need a savior from sin. I need a savior who will give me bread. I need a savior who will give me a good reputation. Riches. Fame. Fortune. Security. then you don't know him. For he's not that kind of savior. This is the saying that is faithful and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. Oh, but some will say, yes, that's right. That's right. Jesus came to save sinners. And that's a wonderful thing that Jesus is the Savior from sinners because that's what I am. And tomorrow I'm going to be going back to my sin. And the day after that I'm going to be going back to my sin. And I will have murder in my heart. And I will live as a whoremonger. I know that I will because that's what I am and because that's what I want and because that's what I do. But if you think that way, you don't know him. I know, beloved, we do sin every day. We do. That's realistic. 
we will always have to battle sin in this life. But there's a difference between, between being realistic about the battle that we must wage every day, where we see it as a battle, something to resist. There's a difference between that and making provision for the flesh. And the latter we must never do, for salvation from sin means salvation from all of it. All of it. It means salvation from the guilt of sin, yes, but it means salvation from the shame of sin, and it means salvation from the power of sin to rule over us. For if you are dead indeed unto sin, then you are alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. To let sin reign in you is to deny Jesus. It is to say to yourself and to everybody around you, I do not know him. You must know him as the Savior from sin. Yes, but you must know him as the Savior from sin. Beloved. And those who are saved from the sin will not make provision for the flesh. Or if and when they do and it comes to their attention that this is what they were doing, they will repent. And they will turn to the Lord for deliverance. In light of all of this, it should be evident that there is no other Savior If Jesus is the Savior from sin and he truly saves us from sin, then there is no other Savior. And we must emphasize this point. The Lord's Day emphasizes this point, and we must emphasize this point as well because there are many counterfeits. There are many who will claim to save us or to be a Savior for us. And we must know the difference between the counterfeits and the true Savior. I do fear a bit how the upcoming political mania in 2024 is going to affect our souls, beloved. We all feel it. And it's not just Christians and those who have a traditional mindset who feel it. We all feel it. Our nation is in trouble. There's big changes that seem to be happening. There are old certainties that seem to be falling away. There's a troubled economy. There's ideological warfare going on. There's conventional warfare going on beyond our borders. There's tensions, tensions that we are experiencing that we never would have imagined 10 years ago. And it feels like we're on the brink of something. And now, as the political season gets closer, there's going to be all these candidates appearing on our television screens, writing slogans on billboards and on signs in people's yards, men and women who will be pitching themselves as saviors. Saviors of our country. 
saviors of our way of life. I will restore the nation to greatness. I will secure the future for your children. I will solve this problem. I will solve that problem. Just trust in me. Trust in me. Vote for me. And of course, there's an extent to which we must pay attention to all of this and we must make wise decisions. We must be good citizens. I'm not denying any of that. We live in this world. We have a concern for this world. But there are many people, I fear, who are beyond just paying attention, who are beyond just making wise decisions. What they're looking for when they look at those candidates and when they read those slogans is salvation. That slogan, that sign, that movement, that cause represents their Savior. Just to make that concrete, what are we supposed to make of a banner that says something like this, which I have seen on people's houses and doorsteps? Jesus is my Savior, and Trump is my president. Really? And those two names have equal footing in your mind. Beloved, I warn you, I warn myself too, but I warn all of us. One day there's going to be a man who arises at a crucial point in history, who presents himself as a political savior. He's going to be a man who will restore prosperity to those who have been impoverished. He's going to be a man who will end wars, who will bring external peace to the entire world. He's going to be a man who will give the people what they want. He will give them bread. He will give them entertainment. He will make them happy. And people will trust in him and they will follow him and they will bow down before him and they will hail him as their savior. And that man is the very person whom the Bible identifies as the man of sin and as the son of perdition. You can look that up. It's Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Oh, this man will have the appearance of a Savior. Oh, he will say the right things. He will make the people trust in him. And oh, men and women and children will follow him wherever this man leads. And he will lead them straight into hell. Because he's no savior. He's an anti-savior, an anti-Christ. For even if he seems to save men from poverty and disease and affliction for a time, he's no savior from sin. He is the man of sin. He's the very embodiment and voice of sin. We ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. And if and when we do, we're looking for salvation in Antichrist. Understand that. There is danger also that we would turn to ourselves for salvation. Oh, we would never say it. And on paper, we are adamantly against it. Works righteousness, salvation by the free will of man, 
To us, these are heresies. Rightly so. But practically speaking, isn't that the way we often approach many of the problems in our lives? If we have committed a sin over here, well, we can even things out if we do some good works over here. Or if we have fallen into temptation over there, well, we're going to try harder next time. And that's not going to happen again. If we're troubled and sad, we can medicate our wounds by turning to drink, by numbing our minds with a television. And all the while we say we are Christians and that we trust in Jesus alone as our Savior. And there are many people like that. Many people like that sitting in church pews on Sunday morning. They boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus the only Savior. They make of him a partial Savior. He's a Savior of this part of my life over, over here, but this other part over there, that's my responsibility. They treat him like fire insurance against the day of wrath. But in the meantime, my joy and my peace is for me to discover. And it's not just they. It's not just people out there generally. That's you, beloved. That's me. That's our flesh that wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ or his salvation. And therefore, it twists and turns it into something that it's not. So we must emphasize this morning that Jesus is the only Savior. Beloved, maybe there is a politician who can save our country. Maybe there is a man who can stem the flow of corruption, who can bring us back to the good old days, who can ensure the USA will be just as powerful and safe and secure for our children as it was for us, who can offer us health and wealth and prosperity, who can put a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage, who can make the streets run with silver and gold, who can end crime. Maybe there is such a man. But even if there is, what good is any of it? After several decades of enjoying the good life, what's going to happen to every man and woman and child in this country? The rich and the poor, the wise and the unwise, the haves and the haves not. What's going to happen to them all? Every one of them will die. And fall into the hands of the God who created them. And if they fall into those hands as a rebel. As the lawless and disobedient. As murderers of mothers and murderers of fathers. As whoremongers. As liars. What good are those few years of enjoyment. Under a man who saved the country. Vanity of vanities. And worse than that. For God will hold them accountable. He will hold them accountable for all the pleasure and all the ease and all the happiness that they had, which they took and absorbed and consumed only to press deeper and deeper and deeper into the service of sin. And God will damn them. Every last one of them. 
That's the final place for the man of sin. And for everyone who bows the knee to the image of the beast, they will be cast into the lake of fire. There is no salvation in such a man, beloved. There is only death. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can save you and your children, beloved. Do you know it? And he will save you. And he will save you in your entirety. I mean, he will save all of your person, your body and your soul, your heart, your mind, and your strength. He's not content to save this part over there and to leave that other part for you to continue in the lust of the flesh and to continue in the death of this life. He's not content to deliver your heart and to set you free on the inside while you join your body to a harlot. He's not content to give you a little grace over here and then to stand back and watch and see what you're going to do with it. No, it's all or nothing. He saves you. He saves all of you. Or you are not saved. And beloved, we would not have it any other way, would we? We would not have it any other way. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in body and soul? Is it not this? That I am not my own. I am not my own. But I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, all of me, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood, satisfied for all of my sins, who delivered me from all the power of the devil, who so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. So much does He save me so entirely that all things that happen to me in this valley, this cursed valley of tears, all things that happen to me must be subservient to my salvation. Is that not your only comfort in life and death? If it is, then you know Jesus alone is your Savior. Jesus alone. And you must make that personal and not just say, oh yes, Jesus is a Savior. He's a Savior of some people. No. You say, and I say, and we all say together, Jesus is my Savior. Isn't that Paul? Paul does not hold back from making a full confession of who and what he is. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And he meant that. Of whom I am chief. He meant that from the bottom of his heart. There is no sinner worse than me. I have blood on my hands. I'm a man who kicked at Jesus Christ and did everything that I could to destroy his body, to tear his house to the ground. The chief of sinners, that's what I am. He confessed it. But he also confessed this. Jesus is my Savior. He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And if you ever doubt that Jesus is able to save the worst, the vilest, 
the most despicable of people. Look at Saul of Tarsus. That's his point in this passage. Look at me. Jesus saved me, he says in verse 16, so that I could be a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Jesus saved me so that nobody could ever say, well, well, I did it. I'm the one. I committed the sin which Jesus has no power to save me from. I'm a blasphemer, a whoremonger, an abuser of God, an abuser of men. I'm lawless and disobedient. I've done all these things that the law has condemned. It's hopeless. I've sinned so bad, so bad. I must be beyond the power of God in Jesus Christ to save me. No, the word of God forbids you to think that way. The Apostle Paul in this passage forbids you to think that way. Jesus is the Savior of sinners, including the chief of sinners. And therefore, he has the power to save you. He does. He has the power to save all who come to him in repentance and faith. They will find in him, they will find in him all things necessary unto their salvation. They will. Are you looking for a savior, beloved? Are you looking for rest for your restless soul? Are you searching for water that will satisfy you, that will replenish you unto life everlasting? Are you looking for bread that will fill your soul? Do you have a troubled conscience this morning? Are there feelings of guilt and shame that keep dogging you? Are you afraid? Afraid of the future? Afraid of disease? Afraid of death? People of God, there is a Savior. There is a Savior for you. There's a Savior with the power to heal your broken souls. There's a Savior who has an answer to your fearful and anxious heart. There's a Savior who promises to renew even this this creation, this cursed valley of tears, and to make it a new heavens. In a new earth where there will be no more tears, where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more suffering and death. There's a Savior, and that Savior is God Himself, sent by the Father in love. His name is Jesus. Do you know Him? You do. I know you do. Now believe in Him. Believe in Him. Lay hold upon Him. Don't ever let Him go. Don't let anything ever come between you and Him. He is your Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for this gift an unspeakable gift, a gift we do not deserve. Oh, Father, we deserve death. We deserve death without hope. But Thou hast seen us and pitied us and given us Thy Son, a gift 
so wonderful, so deep and good. We can never find the words to express our gratitude. And we pray, O Father, that Thou would walk with us, that Thou would lead us to the cross, lead us to the empty tomb, lead us into the arms of our Savior, to find in Him rest and peace for our troubled souls, the answer to our anxieties, the hope for the future. Forgive us, O Father, when in folly we have turned to other things, to other saviors. Let us count all things lost, O Father, all things as dung. But for Jesus Christ, hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.